Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupashko, one of the hosts for the New Books Network. Today, we are here with Dr. Sandro Gala, uh, Dean, and the Robert A. Knox Professor at the Boston University School of Public Health. Hello, Dr. Gala. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Welcome to our channel, and thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, Within Reason, A Liberal Public Health for an Illiberal Time, published by University of Chicago Press in 2023. Um, You know, I know you're familiar with the NBN podcast um, uh, setting, but I still wanted to invite you to tell us more about how you came to this project and what got your thinking going about liberalism and public health. Well, in many respects, this project is uh, reflects thoughts that I've been having about the field for many decades, but the project really was catalyzed around COVID. So um, in uh, 2020, when the world was uh, gripped by the COVID pandemic, I um, my initial uh, focus in uh, 2020 was on understanding the causes of the tragedy that was unfolding in the US, which is the country where I live. And um, that led to my writing of my book, The Contagion Next Time, which came out in 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I was doing that, I became I, I began to think more and more about what we were doing, how we were doing, what we were doing in uh, public health. And I started thinking about I started looking around and thinking carefully about the measures we were taking, the extent to which we were balancing trade-offs, how we were thinking about valuing health and valuing other important aspects of human life. And I started writing a series of blogs on uh, my um, uh, Substack, which is called The Healthiest Goldfish. And uh, these blogs really were reflections on the moment. And uh, as, as the more I started, the more I was writing, the more I, I realized that what I was really writing about was about the philosophy of health and a philosophical grounding that traces its roots back to enlightenment values, to liberalism, and that liberalism was a a thread that was uniting my writings. And um, after some thought, I decided, let me see if I can combine these into a book that is united by this concern with liberalism. Wonderful. And uh, as you say, that is the, the thread that, that goes through through the book. And, you know, it, there are three major sections accompanied by the introduction and the conclusions. And the goal is to, uh, and I quote here, help us see where and why we have gone astray and to begin to chart a course back to liberal public health one that regains the trust of the populations, end of quote. So, you know, I was wondering whether you could say a little bit more about the title itself, because we have the liberal and the liberal time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a tongue twister, I realize. <laughs> um, the, um, so let me talk a little bit about what I mean by liberalism, because I want to be very careful that this is not misunderstood. You know, I don't mean liberal in uh, a partisan sense. And uh, in the U.S., liberalism is... is uh, largely associated with the left, although libertarianism tends to be associated with the right. In Canada, of course, the ruling party is the liberal party. Um, That's that's not the term in which I'm using liberal. I'm using liberal in the more classic sense of the word, as in reflecting a way of thinking about the world. As I said earlier, that arises from uh, Enlightenment uh, times. And liberalism means centering above all autonomy of individuals, thinking about about empiricism and data as informing the progress we make as a society 
not leaning on ideology and belief and thinking about reforming the world slowly with a on a scaffolding of these of empiricism and in a in a way that centers and respects the autonomy which today we tend to call human rights of individuals that's what I mean by liberal thought. Now, I called the subtitle of the book Liberal Public for an illiberal time because I felt like we are living in an illiberal time. And by that, I mean a time where public discourse is informed not by empiricism, but by ideology. Ideology has really hardened how we have public discussions. There's, you can be ideology on the left, ideology on the right. Um, uh, we have um, taken to neglecting empiricism and the dispassionate analysis of the options available to us. We have closed off our mind to trade-offs and to thinking about the range of values that we hold dear as a society. We have been willing to sacrifice the autonomy of individuals uh, in uh, out of a pursuit of some ideologically defined greater purpose that often does not concord with what individuals want for themselves. And all of those, to my mind, are illiberal. So I am urging that health in particular, and I'm writing from within health for health, uh, that health in particular needs to be cognizant of this and shift back to a liberal way of thinking. Absolutely, and you know, as you're 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 mentioning these things, um, I remember right right at the offset of the book, you you mentioned a few obstacles to achieving this, right? To achieving, um, you know, liberal public health, and and you know, the the things that we kind of accrued over time, and this engagement sometimes with 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 different thoughts, right? Um, so I was wondering whether you could uh, tell our audience about these key obstacles, um, and you know, the way you see them. Well, I think uh, I, I think there are there are a number of these obstacles, but let me try to enumerate them. I think number one is um, we have been we have been reluctant to accept that health is but one aspect of a set of values that we want to promote as a society, and the COVID gripped us in a moment where we were interested only in health as an outcome, rather than recognizing that health is a means to an end and that end is living life fully. Number two, we did not seriously and honestly engage with conversations about trade-offs that to achieve, let's say to achieve reduced likelihood of COVID transmission, we may have to impose restrictions that result in students learning less in school, the economy doing less well. And these are trade-offs and we were not honest about the appraisal of trade-offs so that we as a society could make decisions that balance these trade-offs. Number three, we leaned heavily on communication via social media, and um, which of course was the medium that had dominated public conversation. But we, through using that medium, we ended up miscommunicating and elevating ideas that were not vetted and that were not uh, that really do not pass the test of rigor and rigorous analytic thought. And number four, we allowed the work of health to be aligned very narrowly with particular partisan interests, and that does not serve the purpose of health, which should be 
serving the health of everybody. So I think these four, among others, were real challenges that uh, colored what happened during COVID and the state of health during COVID, and in part, perhaps in, in whole, the point of the book is to push back against this. Right. And, you know, you, you mentioned, you, you talk about the United States, you know, because uh, that's the, the country where you live. And, you know, you, of course, familiarity with context is extremely important. But I think we can, you know, we're safe to to extend at least, if not all uh, of, of the concepts and the conversation that these concepts bring to other parts of the world as well. And, you know, thinking about health, right, as a as one of the things that uh, will serve good living, right. And and all of this, I think it's um, it can open a conversation pertinent to other parts of the world um, as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I wrote from a place, as you correctly pointing out. I wrote from the U.S. because this is the context in which I'm living. But I do think that these lessons are generalizable. I don't think that uh, the U.S. is particularly unique in uh, going through a, an illiberal moment. And uh, and I think the prescriptions of thinking about health um, within a liberal frame are very much applicable to all sorts of countries. Right, absolutely. And, you know, we as, as we get into the book, right, the three sections, um, they, they comprise, as you said, of uh, essays that you, you wrote uh, in, the, um, in the newsletter, right? Mm-hmm. And the first section uh, called Foundations uh, features reflections on the structural forces that shape health and on how these forces have at times been shaped by the illiberalism of this moment. And that's a quote from page seven. And, you know, I was wondering whether you could share with us some of these reflections that are, you know, part of foundations. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of my writing before COVID has been around the forces that shape health and the world around us. You know, my my uh, blog, a subsect blog is called The Healthiest Goldfish. And the reason it's called that is based on this metaphor around the goldfish. And many people have told the story in different ways. David Foster Wallace did it at a, in a commencement address. And really, the, the point of it is that what really matters to the goldfish is the water around it, right? And as a goldfish, you often don't realize that. You don't realize because the water is so much around you. You don't think about the fact that you are shaped so much by the water around you. So a lot of my writing, both my, my academic writing, my, I'm an epidemiologist, is about context. It's about the forces in the world around us that shape health and how context is often invisible. So that's why the healthiest goldfish is the name of the of the substack. Now, take that lens, the lens of looking at the world through the ideas of context, through the importance of context in the world around us, and apply that to what happened during COVID, where really it was the ideas of the world around us that shaped the experience that we all had. So, you know, one particular example, for example, would be the um, decision soon after COVID hit to encourage everyone to work from home, who could work from home to work from home. Now, at face value, right, that's an easy decision. You say, look, it's an infectious disease, it's spread person-to-person contact, so if you can work from home, work from home, right? So at face value, that makes a lot of sense. However, when you stop and think about it for a second, and you look at data, we knew before COVID, data before COVID amply showed that people who made were in the top 25% of income, top quartile of income, where a majority of those, 60-something, 65% of those people could work from home. But people in the lower 75% of income, which is the lower three quartiles, 
only a minority of those people could actually work from home. So when COVID hits and we say, if you can work from home, you should work from home, what we are effectively doing is we are saying that we are going to create greater protection for those with higher income because they are they can work from home than for those with lower income, right? So this was an example of where our thinking and our decision-making in the context, in the, in the water that we were all living in, time of COVID, acted in ways that I think are counter to the liberal principles that we want to adhere to. And because those principles should say, would say, that we should center first and foremost the health of those who are who are most vulnerable and people with less lower income are those who need protection more than people with higher income. So we acted in a way through illiberal thinking, and by that I mean ideological thinking and not thinking through the trade-offs of what we were incurring that ultimately harmed us as a society. So that's an example, I think, of a element of context and decisions that were made without thinking carefully through the trade-offs, the implications, who was hurt by these decisions. Absolutely. And, you know, we've seen in, in you know, in, in the United States and, you know, North America as well, right? We've seen the all the conversations that came out of it, but the the decision still continued through through the first year of, of COVID in a way. So, you know, when you're saying that there needs to be a reflection, I think it's both in the moment, but also post-factum, right? Of, of That's correct. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm very careful in the book. The book is not backward looking me. There's no finger pointing. I don't really question specific decisions. And I do that, I do that intentionally because I realize that many decisions were made during a difficult time, trying to do the best thing possible under really challenging circumstances. So I, I really try very hard to be upfront about that. But what I'm trying to do in the book, though, is to say, this was COVID was a tragic moment. It was a tragic moment in uh, in North America, in the world. And moments like this, we owe a responsibility to future generations that we learn from them. So what I'm trying to do is to learn from this moment, trying to look ahead and learn from this moment. Right. And, you know, specifically because if we're thinking, you know, about history of, of pandemics, um, you know, uh, at this scale, right, I think, and of course you please correct me, I might be wrong here, would be the Spanish flu, right? That's correct. That's correct. The, the, largest, the largest other exemplar of this was 100 years ago. That's correct. Right. And, you know, it was a time of war as well, uh, you know, world war. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, the circumstances and the decisions taken then are absolutely, right, the, the context, as you say, are, are completely different. So kind of having these compound lessons, right, and not pointing fingers, but learning, right, for, for future would be extremely important. Right. Oh, that's correct. That's correct. And I think, um, you know, hopefully none of us will have to go through this again in our lifetime. But at the same time, we know there will be other pandemics, whether they're in our lifetime or not. And uh, the book is um, it's an, a really honest effort to try to say, what do we learn about what we did and how we behaved during COVID? How do we structure our thinking so that next time this happens, be it a year from now or 100 years from now, we actually act in a way that preserves individual autonomy, that is based on data, not ideology, and that finds the right space where we can recommend decisions, where society can continue to go on, where people can continue to live their dreams and aspirations, even while combating the virus. You know, I'll use another example that I use in the book. 
which is, you know, decisions that we made about whether or not people could see their loved ones who were dying, right? And, you know, hospital after hospital, health system after health system in the, in the Americas essentially prohibited people from seeing their loved ones. And, uh, or if you could see your loved ones, you know, they were behind plastic. And, you know, a decision like that is predicated on the assumption that the only thing that matters is transmission of the virus, right? But that assumption is false. It's, a, you know, you are willing to accept the risk of transmission of the virus if that means that you can actually give a hug and a kiss to someone who you love who's dying, you know? And these are these are very much human, th these are the elements of of human living and human dignity that we want to to preserve. And we did not value those enough because what we valued was one thing and one thing alone, which is limiting viral transmission. And that, that forgets that human life is not simply about the absence of disease. Human life is about dignity. It is about sorrow. It is about joy. It is about love. It is about friendship. And, and we should not be prepared to sacrifice those just to limit transmission of a disease. Absolutely agree. Yeah. And uh, I think we all have, you know, our own personal stories where we couldn't see a loved one, you know, um, passing. And I think that probably would be a subject for a different book or a new book. Yes. Right? Or, or, or a whole book just about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, to uh, to continue on this track, uh, the uh, section two, heresies, brings to light difficult yet essential, in my opinion, conversations about public health. And um, some of these topics, um, you know, uh, of course, connect to to the first section, foundations. Um, but, you know, I wanted to um, maybe give one or two examples of, um, you know, um, what are some of the topics and heresies and how does engaging with them promote uh, support avenues for a healthier world? Yeah, you know, I called the section heresies because these are things that are that are difficult for us to sometimes to talk about. And uh you know, I'll, I'll use one example, which is the, um, the the challenge of moral grandstanding in public health. The public health faced at the moment. And by moral grandstanding, I mean, I mean creating creating a societal expectation that there was a set of behavior that was acceptable, and that all other behaviors were were une so unacceptable as to be then worth stigmatizing, and uh, where. You know, we, we all started seeing it where you started having mask wearing theater where um, where I, I can't tell you how many people have told me since uh, this book came out. You know, it was this time where I was running my, by myself, not another human in sight. And somebody from, um, you know, many tens of feet away yells at me to tell me to put on a mask. And, you know, smart enough to realize there was I was in no risk of getting a virus from anybody or anybody getting it from me. So then why do I need to wear a mask? Um, you know, so that is the kind of moral grandstanding that we allow to happen, and it happened in the name of public health, and that should not be allowed. We should not, we should never have let that happen. And you know, sometimes I get um, 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 people saying, "Well, public health never said that." Well, public health had a responsibility to set to set the context within which the public discussion happened. You know, another um, 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 part of the heresies is about power, and I try to make the point. That public health acquired enormous power during the pandemic, and with you know with great power comes real responsibility, and as a result, there was a responsibility to wield that power lightly. You know, I've heard you know many public health experts saying, well, you know, we were not responsible for shutting down um, economies, but I think that's disingenuous. I actually think that uh, the world was looking to public health for guidance, and as a result, public health 
had the responsibility to be the most responsible adult in the room and to say that we should value, we value human life and we also value the other elements that actually make life worth living as well as, for example, the economy and education. I mean, our best estimates suggest that school kids lost six months of social, emotional, and subject matter learning that they're never going to get back. Well, that's something that we should value and that's something that we should not have been so willing to allow to go away because, because we were focused on only one outcome, particularly when kids were not very much affected by the virus. We knew this right from the beginning. And, uh, but now there's a whole generation of kids that have been disadvantaged because we were trying to protect ourselves at their expense. So these are what I mean by heresies. These are difficult topics, difficult conversations. And uh, I um, would very much like to make sure that these conversations are had, because I think if we have these conversations now, they will inform our calculus when something happens again. I would hope so. And um, I think that's also the... Um... You know, the, the impetus behind the third section entitled Hope, and um, I'm quoting again here, um, the, the section uh, contains details emerging, um, you know, emerging positive trends that could help us find our way back to a liberal version of public health. So exactly what you, 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 just, uh, you just mentioned. So I'm curious about these trends and their positive influence on, on public health and on the population's perception of public health institutions. Yeah, I uh, I do end on hope because I try to lean into hope, try to lean into the fact that um, there are many challenges in the world, but the world is um, is getting better, and uh, I have hope that uh, we will get ever better uh, going forward. The um, you know since the books come out, right, we have now had multiple opinion polls that show a historical uh, lack of trust in science and in medicine. Like by a 25-point decline from before COVID to after COVID, which is really alarming and paradoxical, right? Because medicine, public health, did enormous good work in COVID. I mean, millions, literally millions of lives were saved because of rapid testing and screening and isolation, because of rapid vaccination, right? Literally millions and millions of lives were saved. So you think that this is a moment where trust in science and medicine should be at an all-time high, but no, instead it's the opposite's happening. The trust is lower than it's ever been. So that should make us say, why is that? And my read of why that is, is because there is a dissatisfaction with the values that guided what we did and with the trade-offs that we made without engaging the public and getting buy-in uh, for these trade-offs. And those are, in many respects, self-inflicted errors. Yeah. And, you know, it's... Um... There is a road ahead, and you mentioned this in the conclusion part. Um, and you know, I just wanted to to ask the question for for our listeners: What does the road ahead look like, at least from your perspective? Well, I think the road ahead is um, is this conversation. I um, it is conversations like this that give me hope, Victoria, because the um, but I, what I'm trying to do is to get us to think. I I don't have clear answers for much of this. And as I said, anyone who reads the book will find that I try to be very careful not to be so prescriptive. I'm simply trying to change our conceptual frame. And the fact that there has been willingness to engage 
with conversations to change its conceptual frame since the book has come out has um, been, I think, gratifying to see. And, and I think it gives me hope. It gives me hope that we as a species are willing to engage with the ideas that will make sure we do better. I have hope too. And, you know, I, I definitely have read conversations about, you know, the, the, I mean, this sounds a bit trite, but, you know, the value of life, but in the sense of, um, you know, what does it mean to, to, to live, right? With friendship, with connection, with, you know, not just have this constant fear of, of, um, of disease. And I think a lot of the conversation also spills into, right, other, uh, not just contagious diseases, right, but, you know, cancer, for example, or other parts where, um, you know, we, we re, as a popu you know, populations, different types, we, we're starting to think more about this type of fear and this type of, of understanding of, of life. And of course, the environment where we're in or go in and out at different, at different stages. Um, and, um, you know, but we, we've taken a lot of your time. So I just wanted to ask one more question about the projects you're working right now on. Well, uh, I'm working on a number of things actually with, a with a colleague, I have my, another book that's just coming out called the turning point with my colleague Stein, which is a series of essays, reflections. Those are sort of written in real time during COVID about different aspects of how the pandemic was unfolding and about, uh, really, um, trying to give a set of real-time reflections now edited and uh, sort of refracted through the lens to try to create a um, a bit of a, what the book tries to do is to create a uh, a document of our evolving ideas during the pandemic again trying to inform doing better in future so that's a project that is actually just coming that's coming to fruition and i continue to um write pretty fairly regularly about every week or every other week on my blog, The Healthiest Goldfish. And what I'm trying to do now is to move beyond COVID and really to articulate a practical philosophy of health, to articulate the foundations that should guide our thinking about health that can serve us in, a, in perpetuity, that can serve us well in future years, on which one can then create other thoughts as crises happen. So that's been taking up a lot of my thinking. Absolutely. And it, it sounds wonderful. I look forward to, to reading both the book and, you know, I hope a lot of uh, our listeners will, will check out the, the healthiest goldfish um, that, uh, that you, you, you write about and, you know, you, you have your thoughts there. Um, I'm going to thank you very much for your presence with us and for sharing your thoughts and the book with us. And I really hope to have you here soon. Um, well, thank, to... you. thank you for doing this. I really, I really enjoy the work that you're doing. Thank you for featuring new books. I feel like it's it is a uh, the work you do and elevating new books is an important part of shaping the public conversation. So thank you for doing it. Absolutely, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.